When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and this week I speak with the team behind the film The Starling Girl, one of my favorite films from this year's Sundance Film Festival, a film that almost didn't happen. After securing financing on the verge of shooting, the COVID pandemic hit, and this film was almost one of the casualties of the pandemic, losing all the funding that they had raised. But as you'll hear in these conversations, the team was able to raise funds again. And we'll talk through all the stages of the process of bringing this film to the screen. It opens in New York and LA theaters today, May 12th, 2023, and expands to additional theaters and cities starting May 19th. The film itself follows Jem Starling, a 17-year-old struggling to define her place within her fundamentalist Christian community in rural Kentucky. And you thought being a teenager was hard enough. Jem, played by Eliza Scanlon, who you may have seen in Sharp Objects, is caught between this growing awareness of her own sexuality and her religious devotion. But even her greatest joy, dancing within the church's dance group, is tempered by worry that her actions are sinful. With the return of Owen, her alluring youth pastor, Jem soon finds herself attracted to his worldliness and charm. And slowly, he starts to draw her into a dangerous relationship that could upend their entire community and their lives. The Starling Girl centers on Jem's agency as Scanlon and a charismatic Lewis Pullman generate this palpable chemistry that even as the film steadily reaffirms Jem's youthful naivete and Owen's position of power still puts you as a viewer in this strange position of sometimes rooting for them, which I think is just so compelling as a storytelling choice. So first, I speak with writer-director Laurel Parmet just after the film's world premiere at Sundance. As a filmmaker, Laurel delicately balances the intoxication around this relationship while also examining the inappropriateness of this connection between these two people who really shouldn't be together. It's a complex coming-of-age story, and it's not being spoken about this based on the genre, but to me, it has this palpable thriller element to it, which we unpack more in our conversation. And in addition to taking us through how she got her start as a director, Laurel also holds our hand through each step of the process of bringing this film to life. This is a masterclass in creating an indie film. A few months later, I caught up with the film's producer, Kara Durrett, to get an update on the film's post-Sundance success, including a Texas premiere at South by Southwest and 
now a theatrical release after the film was sold to Bleecker Street Media. So let's dig into our conversation with the team behind The Starling Girl. Dear Lord, I want to reflect your holiness. Come into this space and fill it with your spirit. Amen. I've noticed that the bra that you chose is visible through your dress. Oh, teachable moment. Hey, thank you. We try to be very conscious, but things slip. Lord, I know I've given into lustful thoughts and actions that take my focus away from you and onto me. I'm here with Laurel Parmet, the writer and director of The Starling Girl, which premiered here at Sundance over the weekend. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, how has it been getting the film out into the world? Really wild and awesome and unexpectedly emotional. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've been wanting to have a film at Sundance for I feel like most of my life and I got up to introduce the film and just standing in front of like a packed theater at the library and have everyone was just looking at me and it was so like surreal. I think it it finally hit me that it was happening. And then I, yeah, I found myself tearing up giving the intro and then I sat down uh, with my parents in the back of the theater and I sat down next to my mom and, you know, the Sundance opening credits were coming on and, and she turned to me and she had, she had like tears mm. running down her face and she was like, you've wanted this for so long and you did it. Oh. And, then, <laughs> and then I started crying and it was, yeah, very emotional, but lovely. And when we got to the end of the film, the last scene of the film, like my producer, Kara was behind me. My producer, Kevin was in front of me and like, we all turned to each other and like, grabbed on to each other, Aww. like, as it, like, cut to black and cut to credits. And it was, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been working. I started writing this five and a half years ago, and it was such a uphill battle to get the film made. Not, I guess, any, you know, all indie films are hard, but it was a rough process at times. And so, you know, it was just nice to be able to celebrate all together. And, Soak it all in. Yeah. Well, you seem, like, full of joy and happiness. Yeah weirdly rested considering <laughs> we've been this is like day six of the festival i did manage to get like six hours of sleep last night oh, so congratulations <laughs> thank you um so for our listeners who haven't seen the film can you give us a, a brief synopsis of what it is yeah so it is uh, about a teenage girl living in a christian fundamentalist community in rural kentucky and she is she's struggling under the weight of, um, you know, what her community expects of her. And she, you know, she's planning on the life that is expected of her is marriage at a young age and having lots of children and and being like a, a keeper of the home. Mm -hmm. That's um, what's really, you know, that in these communities, it's believed that women were created for that. And she starts to question everything her, when her youth pastor returns from a, a year away um, in Puerto Rico and he, he comes back from a mission and she finds herself drawn to him. And yeah, she starts to, to question things a little bit and spending time with him. Um, it brought me back to my church camp days. Really? I went to this church camp, and I don't know if it was fundamentalist. And I, I showed up simply because it was down the street from where my grandparents lived. Oh, where and was it? It was in Viola, California. Okay. So rural, outside of Reading, which is a pretty conservative area. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know 
uh, th- I'm not religious now, but uh, I didn't know that you could only get saved once. So I'd go and get saved every summer. <laughs> I felt so guilty. And and actually that guilt is, seems like a theme throughout the film. And, and we'll get to the film in a little bit, but mm-hmm. I want to hear about how you got started. As you mentioned, it, you got your start as a writer, correct? I, well, yes, I suppose. Uh, well, let me caveat to the audience that th- <laughs> this is your first feature film, but you've yes. made a ton of short films. I, yeah, I've made a bunch of shorts. Yeah, I, I kind of, I guess my start in the film world was, so firstly, uh, both of my parents work in film. My dad is a DP um, and my mom does costumes. And so... I grew up on film sets as a kid and always knew that I wanted to tell stories in some capacity, but just wasn't sure what that would look like. And then I moved to New York and um, in undergrad, I I took a film history course and that really kind of solidified it for me. I was exposed to all of these filmmakers that I, you know, didn't know about before, like Jane Campion and Wong Kar Wai and Milos Foreman. And I was like, oh God, like I want to do that. And after undergrad, I lived in New York and kind of just hustled did working in the industry in any in any way I PA'd and then I production coordinated commercials and production managed and um I was uh executive assistant at a production company I was an associate producer on a Vice TV show mm-hmm. I edited I was a uh you know, like a camera operator for like small doc shoots. I sort of just like did whatever I could. So um, my my thing you of saying you got started in writing is exactly <laughs> wrong. Well, I get. I mean, I got. I I wrote professionally before directing. Mm-hmm. Yes, got it. But um, you were getting the experience across every point of production before that. Yeah, I you know I I knew that I wanted to direct and I wanted to write. And but I wasn't sure how to get into it really, other than trying to make stuff. And yeah, and you know, I had to support myself. So um, so yeah, I was just working in any way that I could to meet people in New York and just, you know, get to know the film world. And honestly, and I'm really glad I did. Like those years made me a stronger director and just really informed, I think, how I am with my crew and on set. Mm-hmm. So yeah, after that, I, you know, while I was working, I I just didn't have time to do any of my own projects. And I decided ultimately to apply to film school. And I went to NYU for grad film and have a lot of student debt from it. But truly, I I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, it was three years of just being able to practice my craft and, and get better at it and, and also be brought into a community that is invaluable. They are the pe- the people I went to school with are now my best friends. Yeah. They read all of my drafts. They watch my cuts. Same with my professors. Like all of my professors watched a cut of Starling Girl and, and, you know, and gave me feedback. And it's just such a valuable, wonderful community. Mm-hmm. And I started writing Starling Girl actually at NYU in my third year. And while I was at NYU, I made my shorts, Spring and Kira Burning. Mm-hmm. And they premiered, each of them premiered at South by Southwest. And that's actually... How I met Kara, my producer. I met her in 2018 at South by. Uh-huh. Did she have a film there or a short? She had a short, and yeah, and we just sort of like fell in love uh-huh. and kept in touch. And you know, when I had a draft of Starling, I shared it with her, and that sort of like began the process. And then I also met my other producer, Kevin, there, who's also my manager and wonderful. And that was sort of like the beginning of my, the very, very beginning of my writing directing career um it was like 
get once I got representation and and then had a script sample, then I started getting screenwriting work and you know was doing this. I uh, was writing for hire while trying to get Starling made. What was the process of writing for hire? Were you pitching on open writing assignments or being hired to write in a writer's room? Yeah. So you know, I it's funny. I kind of. I didn't plan for it initially. I had a general meeting with a production company and they had read Starling and I think Starling was like too small for them, but they really liked it. And they were like, you know, would you ever want to write other projects um, for other people? And I was like, you know, just out of film school and was like, yes, please. Like, yeah. I would love to do something that's not like, you know, it's a little bit closer to what I want to do ultimately and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and make some money. Um, and they had this project it's a uh, little lamb the it's Sam Levinson's production company uh-huh. um and they had this project that they were looking for writers on and they sent me the deck and i loved the world and was like i feel like i could totally do this yeah. um and i spent like 3 weeks crafting a pitch and with the help of like my reps cuz i had never done it before and right. so they sort of you know walked me through like what is expected in a pitch and then yeah then i went in and then i pitched it for everyone and <laughs> they they hired me that's awesome <laughs> and how long were you working on that project um i guess as a whole probably i guess, I, mean, I guess it's a year and a half it it was it's kind of it's hard for me to say because this is a thing that I learned contracts take a really long time and so it was actually like the time in between I got hired and the time that I actually started physically writing was like a a big chunk of time and that's something that I that I learned that like if you're you know if you're a writer for hire you don't necessarily know like when the paychecks are going to come even like when you have a job so that was interesting but yeah on and off probably like a year and a half and you know and that was coming up with writing treatments and and first draft and second draft Mm -hmm. and and all of that and it was a great experience like they were wonderful partners um, and they have great taste and gave me a lot of freedom and yeah I really enjoyed it. Now, I want to hear a little bit more about working with Kara mm-hmm. and and Kevin. So uh, were they were both producers on the project, mm-hmm. Kevin being your manager. What roles did they fill? Were they in lockstep? Did they serve different purposes? Was Kara the creative producer and Kevin more high level, removing barriers? Uh, that's just me projecting, knowing, having zero context. But yeah, yeah what was it like working with two two different producers? It was so great. Kara, you know, Kara comes from the indie world um, and has made a bunch of indie films now and, you know, which have like premiered at Sundance and she, um, she was able to really handle like the physical production aspect of stuff and speak to, you know, what that was going to be like. And Kevin, I mean, I would say there was like a little bit of a a blend between the two. It wasn't like super differentiated Mm -hmm. roles like Kevin. Yeah. He comes from more of like the manager, managerial part of the industry. Um, and, you know, dealing with, agents and lawyers and all of mm-hmm. that but at the same time Kara would also do the same thing and Kevin would then you know was really helpful in bringing in and hiring department heads and stuff so they it was sort of like they they both have their strengths but they were able to to do both things yeah they could flex into the other yeah. realm if needed yeah okay so you mentioned that you started writing 
the Starling Girl at NYU. Take us through the sort of early stages. It sounds like it started as a writing sample, but you were always trying to get it made as a feature. What was that? Er- those early year years in the five and a half year span? What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, it didn't start, I wouldn't say that it started as a writing sample. It was, it started as like, I wanted this to be my first feature. And then it just so happened that it was a writing sample, which was great. But yeah, I started it my third year of NYU. It was after... I think it was after being at South by and everyone was like, you know, what's your next feature? And and my reps were like, you have, you know, like it's time to start thinking about that. And I I, I knew that I had to do that too. And I had a, f- a few different ideas percolating, but Starling ha- was always the most immediate in right. my mind. So it was pretty clear that like, that was what I was going to do. I started writing it and um, I feel like Maybe after like a year of working on it, we started sending it out, mm-hmm. um, looking for money. And and then we actually, so we, I went through the, um, the Sundance Screenwriters Intensive mm-hmm. in 2019, which was awesome and really helped. And I, I wouldn't say anything like major changed about the script, not like huge plot points or anything. Right. Well, actually, I mean, there, there used to be a there used to be a sister character that was really monumental that I actually removed. Um, but it was really about just deepening the characters, making them more specific, making the choices less surprising, and turning up the drama as much as possible. And then, yeah, after that, Kara uh, did the creating the creative producers lab at Sundance with mm-hmm. the project, um, which was also awesome. Yeah. How, what was that like as as a writer director having your producer be a part of a lab? Were you engaged yeah. at all with it? I mean, were you sitting in on meetings or, or or talks, or was she going and doing that, and then would come back with, okay, this is what I've learned? So she she went and did the lab and came back and like had gotten feedback from a bunch of mentors in the mm-hmm. same way that I had when I went through uh, the screenwriters intensive. Um, so, you know, we got some feedback from that and, and, you know, worked on the script a bit. And then we went to Sundance in 2020 to sort of like finalize raising the money for the film. Oh. Um, this is actually the first time somebody has talked about coming to Sundance to raise funds. So yeah. Okay. We can dig into that. Yeah. Well, so the reason I came, I mean, it was kind of part of the feature film program that, you know, Karen and I did. Um, Sundance, I don't know if they still have it, but in 2020, they had this thing called Talent Forum mm-hmm. where you know, we, you sit down with a bunch of different investors if you're like a Sundance supported project. Right. So I came out to do that. Um, but we had already had a couple investors that we were talking to at the time that we knew were going to be here. And so it, it just felt like it would be good to come here, ha- you know, have them see me and Kara. Kara had a film here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she, her film, uh, called Save Yourselves was premiering in competition in 2020. A very funny film. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, it just felt like, and and Kevin was out here too. It just felt like it was a good place to sort of like finalize everything. Mm-hmm. And which we did. Um, we, we, fin- we, we finalized, I think we actually got two different, we had two different companies bidding to produce the film, to finance the film. And this is Pinky Promise, the company now 
No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell. I mean, th- so this is part of why it was uh, such a journey getting the film made because we were, f- we got fully financed in 2020 mm-hmm. um, and we started the casting process and we were all ready to go. Um, and then, you know, that, that thing, thing happened. That happened. The thing that, that I vaguely uh, remember that changed a lot of things uh-huh. came and um, yeah, sort of, you know, threw a wrench in all of it. Mm-hmm. So, Eventually, it all fell apart, um, and we, yeah, we didn't know how we were going to make the film, <laughs> um, and it was pretty dark for me. And you know, I mean, you hear it's not an uncommon story. Like right. you always hear about independent films, you know, having the pieces fall through and having to scramble and find another way to do it, and so it's not like there was anything special about it other than the fact that it was like a pandemic that did it. But yeah. um, like, it's funny. I, I would, I, I can sometimes be negative and I like, will fantasize about like all the things that could possibly go wrong. Yeah. Never in my wildest dreams did I think like the a pandemic shut was going to like prevent the film from happening. You know, I always thought like, Oh, a cast member would drop out or whatever. Right. But yeah, so it was a tricky time. Um, and what ultimately happened was Sundance stepped in and they have this program called Catalyst. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we applied, they told us about it and um, we applied and it's uh, a, a program where they invite 10 film projects, uh, four narrative projects and six doc projects. Or that's what it was when we went and you go and they have, um, you go to the Sundance resort and they have basically a, they invite a number of private equity like financiers and people who are looking for projects yeah. and Sundance brings them to them. And you spend, Kara and I spent months working on our pitch um, and we worked with the Catalyst team, amazing folks in the Catalyst team. Um, at the time it was Julia Nelson and uh, Caroline Von Kuhn who has since left and now it's Julia Caruso mm-hmm. um, and Monica Vila. Um, but they are such champions of our film. And yeah, we spent months crafting a pitch and working, you know, on a deck. And um, and then, yeah, we went to the Sundance Resort and Kara and I got up on stage and like had a big, like, essentially like presentation that, you know, but uh, not a, it was like a glorified PowerPoint, yeah. but it was, it was much nicer than that. And yeah. and yeah, and Kara and I got up on stage and talked for 15 minutes um, and pitched the film. And that was a big part of how we raised our financing. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you're pitching to financiers, Mm -hmm. and and it seems like you've been... pitched at multiple stages and in multiple formats. Mm-hmm. Like before 2019, you had already been in conversations and then part of the Catalyst program was really developing and honing in on that pitch. Yeah. What was what was the like breakdown of the pitch? And you don't have to do all, all 15 no, yeah. minutes, but like where did you start with it? And then what was the final 
sell to speak to that audience in particular? Yeah. There are different forms of pitching. Like the catalyst form of pitching is not the same as like what you would do in like, you know, a meeting in someone's office. Right. Like that is its own thing. A development um, exec is looking for something that's very different than. Yeah. It's, I think the process with a development exec is, yeah, it's different because it's, it feels a little bit more of like a conversation, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, or that's what I try to do anyway, is yeah. make it feel like more of a conversation rather than like, you're sitting here, I'm sitting here, here is my presentation, yeah. which, um, so yeah, it's just different. But I guess like, you know, the gist of the pitch is always the same, right? You you want to give them a sense of who you are as a filmmaker, why your voice is specific and unique, and why it will make this project stand out and why you have to be the person to tell it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously you want to tell them what the story is too. Um, and then, and then you have to think about, you know, what is the best way to communicate the story? And it, and it will differ depending on who you're pitching to as well. Like right, maybe right. one person you'll focus on one aspect of the story more than, you know, another person. Um, so I try to really tailor it to who I'm talking to. And that's what we did with Catalyst too. Like, you know, the Catalyst women, were able to kind of give us an idea of, you know, what um, these financiers would be looking for and um, helping us tailor our pitch to that. But yeah, and and then it's giving them a sense of, you know, what you plan to do visually. And, and I, I spend a lot of time with that, you know, with references and I always have, I made a, I have a lookbook um, that I've had for, you know, for years, which I did before Catalyst too. Um, and spent a really long time making sure that, you know, every single image in that lookbook reflects, I mean, even, even the text, like every single part of the deck has yeah. to feel like the film. Um, which is great for the discovery process of the film as a director, I'm hugely. sure. Hugely. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, that's the amazing thing about pitching is that it feels partly like early pre-production and that you're every time you pitch you know you are get you you're honing in on what is the most important part of the story so that's really helpful yeah and then yeah in like finding the images you know you're also getting exposed to other films as a result because you're you're seek I was seeking out really specific things and yeah it's super helpful it makes you a better director so assuming you came out of the Catalyst program with the financing, mm-hmm. um, you started, you moved into production itself. How long was prep and how long were you shooting? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we didn't, it wasn't, we didn't like go to Catalyst and like come out like that. Ah, we have the money. Like it was, yeah. a, it was, it, you know, we found some money there and it was a, um, you know, it was a couple, it was a few months after that. But yeah, I think we found out that we were, greenlit or we knew we we knew that we were going to be greenlit had a good feeling we were optimistic probably like begin very very beginning of 2022 and i went out to kentucky by myself to scout um just to i just wanted to spend some time there alone and get a sense of everything and drive around and that's a really big part of my process Mm -hmm. is just being alone in the locations for a long time and letting myself dream and then yeah, we God, it was casting real fast, and we went and we f- started prep in Kentucky uh, in April of 2022, and then we were shooting in May and June. Wrapped in June, started. I think I had like 
one or two weeks of a break and then started into the edit in July. And then, yeah. And then we were cutting July, August, September. We locked in, I think, end of September, early October and submitted to Sundance and then found out that we got into Sundance in uh, November. And and then, yeah, it was like a race to the finish line of doing sound and color. And we kind of, we had to wait until a little bit later just because of the schedules of our DP and mm-hmm. our uh, sound editor designer. Um, so we were kind of doing both of those things in December. Oh my gosh. Um, it was, yeah, it it's was so kind fresh. of a mad, mad dash. Um, and then, yeah, delivered to Sundance and we, I mean, yeah, I think we finished the film. Uh, I can't say for certain, but not too long before we premiered it. <laughs> well, I'm, I, it's, I've actually, a realization that I've had in speaking with the filmmakers here is that they all, they all just finished and it's so fresh. And usually we're talking to folks and it was like, well, two years ago we were on set doing this. And it's like, well, it was, everyone deserves a nap after this festival. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was the, the editing process was, I mean, I love, I love my editor and we had a great time, but it was fast. I... And Sam, his name's Sam Levy, and he comes from, he, he's been an AE on, assistant editor on big studio projects. And just like hearing his stories of like how long other directors get to cut their movies, yeah. like hearing like one director like cuts his movies for a year. It's like, what? That's incredible. I want to do that. Um, how many weeks were you cutting? Uh, I think it ended up being four months. Okay. And this is also... A newbie question that I should know probably, but um, were you in the the Directors Guild at that point? No. Okay. No, no. So you didn't have the like guaranteed, I mean, this is an indie film, so there's not the studio guarantee turnaround time that you no. have typically. Yeah. You know, it, it comes down to a budget thing. I mean, right. just, yeah, have the amount of money that we had and, um, and also the Sundance deadline. Like we yeah. knew that we wanted to submit to Sundance, so... That was a big part a great, of it too. A great motivator. Um, when it, when it was when you were in it during those four months of editing, were you showing up every day working with Sam Levy on the cuts, or would would he be putting together an initial like an editor's cut, and then you'd come in? Uh, what was the the balance and schedule of that? Yeah. Um. So I was working with him every day. Sam is actually he's based in New York, and I'm in LA. So what we did was. After we wrapped, I went out to New York and I worked with Sam for two weeks mm-hmm. to like do essentially like a fine assembly. He had already started, you know, while we were in production, he was starting to get, you know, the footage. And so right. he had started putting it together and he, so he would show me the scenes that he had started to put together and and then I would come in and, and you know, shape them how I had envisioned them. And it was the first time Sam and I had worked together. So he was getting a sense of my style, my taste, my rhythm. Um, and just, yeah, we were learning how to work together, um, which was great. And we had a great time and Sam is so committed and we worked every single day for two weeks. We didn't have any breaks just because we knew that we didn't have a lot of time. And Mm -hmm. that was a very gracious 
uh, thing for him to do. And he didn't have to do that. Were you, uh, cause I know you have a background in editing as well. Were mm-hmm. you sometimes driving in the session that you were working in or were you standing next to him or sitting next to him and saying, what if we tried this? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't, I, he, he cut an avid. I wasn't at like the computer or anything, you know, mm-hmm. I was sitting behind him looking at my own like director's monitor tv but but yes was directing the edit um and and saying like you know i want to use this take i want to i want it to be this shot you know i want it to be a close-up rather than a wide or whatever and the thing that sam and i are i think both really good at are performances um you know he and i pretty much always agreed on it on like the takes that we wanted to use which was pretty great yeah and then so so we worked together for two weeks and then I went back to LA mm-hmm. because we didn't have the money to to put me up. And I, I was staying at like, you know, I, all my friends are in New York still. So I was staying at friends' houses and stuff. But but yeah, I went, I had to go back to LA at some point. Had to see my dog. Yeah. Um, and we used Evercast, mm-hmm. um, which I had never done before. I'd never done remote editing. And I was so nervous about it. And Sam was too, because he had never done it. And we were like, ah, oh, we're going to try this and we're going to hate it. And you know what? I'm just going to like fly back to New York and we'll find a way to make it work. Like yeah. we need to work in person. And you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> it was great. Um, Evercast was awesome. I, you know, we, we would log in every day and um, the way that it worked, it hooks up to his Avid and mm-hmm. we could talk to each other the entire time. We could have had our cameras on, but we chose not to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I can see his monitor essentially on my computer and I would hook my computer up to my TV so that I could sit on my couch and and watch the TV and and talk to him and, and work through the edit that way. And it was really it. it the only there's like. Sometimes the only thing that I had to do, you have to work a little extra hard sometimes in communicating certain things or certain things that you want because you're not there. Yeah. But like sometimes with music, especially, but, um, but ultimately like it was great. And we cut most of the film like that. Wow. That um, gives me hope because my editor just moved to Amsterdam. Oh, really? And she's like, there's a thing called Evercast. And I'm like, I don't know. I know. I understand. Um, it's scary. It is. but Especially because editing can be, and like you mentioned, like managing the music or temp score, editing can be sometimes so much like rhythmic and visceral, but yeah, you were able to make it work. But if you, I mean, have you guys worked together in person before? Yeah. That definitely helps. I mean, I think the fact that Sam and I worked together in person for two weeks before doing remote made a big difference, mm-hmm. especially because he and I, you know, we didn't know each other that well. And right. I, I left those two weeks feeling like I knew Sam very well. <laughs> yeah. And and um, yeah, and we had a shorthand. Um, but yeah, I think I think you'll you should be able to do it. Um, <laughs> I'll report back. <laughs> you know, it's also having a good internet connection, I think, really makes a big difference, yeah. too. Make sure you have a good internet connection. Well, let's talk a little bit about the performances yeah. themselves. Uh, you cast so well. And I was speaking with uh, Sam, your uh, PR person, before about how the this feels like a thriller in so many ways. <laughs> and so... How did you, did you do in-person chemistry reads with Jem Starling and her youth pastor? Uh, what was that process like? Yeah. So unfortunately, I could not do chem reads in person because uh, Eliza lives in Australia. Because what budget? <laughs> yes. Um, and Lewis was in LA. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we weren't able to do that. I, I really wanted to. Um, and in the future, perhaps I will get to. but. 
Yeah, you know, I, I so Eliza, I always, I've always loved her. And when I was writing Starling, I saw her in Sharp Objects mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my God, who is this person? Like, she's exactly who I'm picturing for Jem. She really has this amazing ability to, she can be so vulnerable and and so naive seeming, but mm-hmm. then she has this like ferocity underneath and like can go really dark and not everyone can do that, but she can. And that was really necessary for this role. So yeah, brought her on. Um, did you approach her personally or did you have, did you go through the sort of like your manager or agents reaching out to her team? So what happened, it was quite kismet. My producer, Kara, was working with her on another project. Uh And so Kara slipped her the script. And you know, and yeah, we still talked to her agents too, did that whole dance. But you're like, I'll just put this here and see what happens. I mean, listen, if you have any way to do that, it just can help speed up the process so much because, you know, in the past, like even like the first round when we were trying to get this film made, like you send the script you know, through agents and it like, God, an actor won't read it for two months. Right. And it's right. like, you're in that limbo for so long. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. And that was something that they didn't teach me in film school. And I was like, well, welcome to the no film school podcast. Yeah, I mean, li- really, that's like a huge part of the casting process going, you know, my casting director, Rebecca Dealey is amazing. Love her. I wrote down her name after because I was like, whatever this woman did. Yeah. It's fantastic. No, she's, uh, we, we can talk about her too. But yeah, the whole process of, waiting for actors to respond to you and is crazy. Cause then if someone passes on you, then you go to the next person on your list and they're not available anymore. Cause it's two months have passed and yeah. they're on an Apple TV show now or whatever. So that's a whole frustrating dance that you just got to go through, unfortunately. Yeah. But so yeah, with Eliza, luckily, you know, we had a we had a direct path to her, which yeah. um, I'm really happy we could take advantage of. Um, and then with Lewis, Lewis was actually someone that Rebecca Dealey brought to my attention. I wasn't initially very familiar with his work, and then she showed me him, and immediately was really captivated with his work. That and um, I met with him in person, and just got an instant vibe of like, oh wow, this feels. This feels special. This feels like someone that I could work with and I could see him as Owen. Yeah. He was wearing cowboy boots at our meeting. And <laughs> on purpose? Or is well, that just him? No, that's just him. I thought at first he was doing it to show that he was like a country boy, yeah. but it just turns out he wears cowboy boots all the time. So <laughs> but yeah, you know, Lewis has such an amazing charisma and is a genuinely wonderful person. Yeah. And that was important to me with Owen's character because yeah, I wanted Owen to have this charisma and have this something that was magnetic about him so that the audience could understand, you know, why Jem was drawn to him and maybe have the audience fall for him a little bit too. Yeah. And, you know, not have him be this like just this one-sided, you know, manipulator. You know, I the character Owen is a conflicted guy who's yeah. dealing with his own problems very much so. And wanted to make sure that we brought someone on who could really like bring a softer side to that character. Right. Which is what makes the tension throughout the film so compelling. Yeah. I think that if you cast somebody who immediately we put in the box of, oh, this is a bad guy. This is a manipulator. He's taking advantage of this younger woman. Right. We would, it wouldn't make the movie something that we're leaning into and feeling conflicted about and feeling like we're almost rooting for them to succeed. Right. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Otherwise, I just think it's kind of boring. Cause then you're like, 
I don't know. My favorite films are the ones where you are engaged in that, like, do I want this? Do I not want this? Is he a good guy? Do I like him? Do I not? Like, uh, those are my favorite kinds of movies. And I think it also just, like, it allows the audience to understand, too, what Jem is going through, right? And how this can happen to anyone. Right, right. So, um, but I'm, I'm going on a tangent. I what I what I did with casting with the two of them is we all got on a Zoom together essentially and I just like you know I wanted to see them together yeah because you know the visuals honestly that was a big part of it too like Eliza was playing a seventeen year old how old is she when she or how old was she when she was playing the role she was twenty three okay and a lot I will say I mean she has another great thing about Eliza for this role is she has the ability to look very young but also sometimes she feels very adult and yeah. that's something that's important with Gem's character too yeah. like she she's a set she's 17 and so she's like she's a kid sometimes but also she she's a, a grown-up and i mean especially in in these communities women you know have kids at a young age get married at a young age right. so she's sort of in this in-between place so yeah i it was important that like owen's character felt visibly older than her and let like if you saw them the two of them together that like you would pick up on that, but not he. I didn't want him to feel so old yeah, that it like was like instantly creepy either. Yeah. It was really this like fine dance. Um, but yeah, we got on a Zoom and we all just talked and and I watched them interact a little bit and um and they you know both seemed to really hit it off and and I felt like I felt like I could do it. I the thing with chemistry for me is. I I, I wouldn't say this categorically with anyone, but I do think that you can build chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I felt that with them. I was like, okay, like there is enough here that like, I know if I have a week or two of rehearsals, I can get them there if mm-hmm. I need to. Truthfully, I didn't have to do many chemistry exercise. Like they, there was, the chemistry was there, but yeah. So after doing the zoom, yeah, I felt like we, they, it would work well and um, attach them both. And then God, we were, I guess we started rehearsals, yeah, a week before before shooting. A week um, before, sh- were you able to rehearse everything or? Yeah, pretty much. And anything that I think that we didn't get to, we would do on weekends mm-hmm. too. Um, they were super, they, they wanted to rehearse. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad we did because we needed time to build that trust between the two of them. Right. You know, because there's a lot of intense scenes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I like to do with them Every actor is different, so I, I, you know, I, I got a sense of what their processes were, and but you know, we would go through each scene, go through the script, and talk about the characters and talk about the arcs, and I really like plotted out each scene, like sort of how I wanted the audience to feel about Owen's character. Mm-hmm. So that was something that you know we all talked about too. Um, at what point do we want the audience to kind of be you know engaged in their connection? And yeah. at what point in in the what scene do we want them to be like, oh wait, that was that was weird what he just yeah, did. Yeah, well, you take us on a roller coaster ride with how we feel about Owen. So. Good, yeah, and and that was something you know that was very intentional and, mm-hmm. and something that we worked on in rehearsals and. The rehearsal process was great for me too because our our schedule was so tight that I knew how on many the, days it's twenty four twenty four days total. Um, and the, there there were a lot of scenes that got cut actually in the film, so we had a, we had a lot of stuff that uh, to fit in in those twenty four days. 
but I knew that, yeah, we weren't going to be able to really like experiment on mm-hmm. the day. So I wanted to be able to do that in rehearsals. And, and it was also helpful because I ended up like rewriting scenes too in rehearsals, you know, because oh. it was, yeah, it was just the first time seeing it on seeing its feet. It and, and seeing it with these two actors right, too. Right. The thing is, is I always knew it was always my plan once casting them to, to do changes to the script, to be able to just tailor the characters more to who they yeah, are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and we would do some improvs that would give me ideas for mm-hmm. like changing dialogue or changing blocking. So that was great. I'm so, so grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I would cut scenes or I would, you know, yeah, change the blocking or change the action, change what they were saying. And just like simplifying, getting to the core of each scene. Right, right. Um, and they they were awesome. And I will, I think I will insist upon rehearsals for the rest of my career. I I love that. And that every listener should do the same if you're yeah. directing. You know, I mean, it, it, listen, it depends on on your process <laughs> and, and who you are. But for me, I, I it's necessary for me. Yeah. Now, um, as we wrap up here, what advice do you have for a filmmaker who has made shorts and has some experience on set that is about to endeavor on their first feature? Oh, God, so much. But I think... And th- by the way, this, is, this whole podcast is full of gems of information. Oh, good. And information about gem, darling. <laughs> you know, I think a big thing that I'm really grateful for in this experience was my cast. Um, and a lo- I attribute a lot of that to my casting director, Rebecca Dealey. This is something that we talked about a lot when we were casting is the kind of people that I wanted to work with. Every single actor in this film is a wonderful human being. Oh. Um, Eliza Scanlon, Lewis Pullman, Ren Schmidt, uh, Jimmy Simpson, Austin Abrams, Jesse Burgum, like all such lovely people who were passionate about the project and passionate about my vision and were there to do the work. We didn't have any divas. And, you know, and you, you of course, you, you hear about, you hear those stories. Right. And and I, I am so grateful that I didn't have to, on top of all of the stresses of making an independent feature and my first feature, that I didn't have to worry about an actor being upset about something. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, cause that, that is, that takes up a lot of your energy and you don't need that. And you and don't. Is it worth it? No. Yeah. And, and so if you can, and listen, you're not going to always be able to do this because there's so many other factors with, you know, if your financing is dependent upon a certain level name and all of that. But if you are able to surround yourself with actors who are going to support you and who are going to do the work and, and, and just, create help create a family environment that's going to be really beneficial to you because then you can focus on all the all the other stuff that you have to do and not the annoying political stuff there will be other annoying political stuff that you have to deal with but that was just some that was one thing off of like that i I didn't have to worry about and Mm -hmm. i'm so so grateful i'm also like i'm a pretty sensitive person and if if someone is unhappy um I, I feel, feel it. I feel it, and it affects me on set. Um, and so I, I, and I, that was something that I learned about in this process too. Is I really I need if if I can design an environment where it's like it's chill and people are there to do work mm-hmm. and they feel appreciated. Like that's the best for everyone, and that that's the best for me in my directing process. That's when I can focus the most. So yeah, if you can do that with your department heads too, like really try. Yeah. Well, it seems like you created a very 
supportive family behind the camera as you captured and a very dysfunctional family in front of the camera. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and where can our listeners follow your work? Um, well, I have my, um, my two shorts, Spring and Kira Burning are both on Vimeo. And the Starling Girl is, uh, well, it's playing at Sundance currently. Yes. And I think it, premi- it premiered online today. Oh, um, nice, nice. And which I get, I guess this is airing later. So you yeah. guys, so you guys won't be able to, to check it out, but. Um, so don't go online. So don't go online. Sorry. Um, but, you know, hopefully we'll have distribution soon and, um, and you guys will be able to watch the film and I hope you like it. Thank you so much, Laurel. And yeah. thank you to our listeners. Thank you for being so vulnerable about the production process and every stage of it. I think oh, this yeah. is so helpful. Honestly, I mean, that I'm, I'm so passionate about doing that. I'm, I'm so grateful when filmmakers have done that for me. So I think we should all be sharing and helping each other. Yeah. Well, um, this will be a very coveted podcast listen, I can <laughs> awesome. tell. Hey, listener, here is my conversation with producer Kara Durrett days before the film's theatrical release. Thank you so much, Kara, for joining us. Of course. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad we got to connect. I know we were going through at Sundance and then obviously get taken away, but swooped away by, by many things and that is the festival way it's a lot of moving pieces but uh we didn't know at the time but congratulations on winning the producers award at the festival oh thank you that's very nice of you thanks it was really cool it was very fun when we were at sundance laurel gave us the download of the entire development process and production process and she really took us through the steps of the journey of making this film and the work that you two did together. But this was moments after the world premiere and you were all still on this journey. Totally. So at the time, we didn't know about the Producers Award. We we didn't know publicly about uh, the upcoming South by Southwest screening. We also didn't know that the film would be acquired by Bleecker for a theatrical release this weekend. So it's kind of everything has fallen into place in this wonderful way. Totally. Um, can you take us through what this post Sundance time has been for you both? Yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a whirlwind. I mean, it always is if you're a lucky one, sometimes it's not, and that's super scary as well. But for us, we were really fortunate and we had a really strong response out of Sundance. And, you know, basically as soon as we premiered, it was kind of um, all hands on deck and, and our entire sales team was just like working constantly around the clock and trying to make sure we could get all the offers in and, it was definitely to Bleecker. It was one of those sales that I've had happen in the past before, but it was one of those ones where they call you in the middle of the night and they're just like, you got this offer and you have to answer in an hour. And are you, you know, do you want to do it? And it's like, I've worked with Bleecker before. They, they premiered a movie of mine called Save Yourselves. Mm-hmm. And I just love those guys. And they've always like treated me and my film so well. And I was just so excited whenever they wanted a partner because I felt like it was kind of the perfect partnership from the beginning. So I was very lucky. Sorry, I didn't even answer the question. The after Sundance, what has happened? Yeah, I don't know. We sold and then it's really been this kind of plan of like, when do we want to premiere? What time of year do we want to premiere? What else are we competing against? How do we get mm-hmm. all of our materials together? When you have an indie that's this small, there's not many materials to get together because it's just so fast whenever you're making it. And so we had to do a lot of digging of like, what can we pull to use for marketing? 
how can we get the cast involved and just how can we make sure we have like the biggest release possible so that we have the most people come and see it. What was the strategy and those conversations with Bleecker? Um, it's such a unique position for an independent film to make it to this stage. And I think it's easy to like assume that that this happens a lot, but it actually doesn't, like you, to your point. Totally. So when somebody reaching this point, like what types of conversations should they be prepared to have? Yeah. I mean, the biggest conversation is like, how fast can you deliver? Or are you comfortable mm-hmm. waiting a million years? And it's usually one of those you know, different ones. It's like some people are like going to premiere for a year and a half. And some people are like, can you deliver me the finished movie with all of the logos and all of the things in like three weeks? And like, how does that, you know, how does your schedule work? Wow. How does the post house work? This was definitely one of those. We picked um, the May deadline. And once we had that deadline in our mind, it's like, you know, it was immediately like off to the races. So it happened really, really fast. We had to call our title designer, we had to call our post house, we had to call our VFX artists. There were a few things from the Sundance screening that were not perfect and we wanted to finish them correctly because mm-hmm. we just didn't have time to do it the way we wanted. Um, so we were kind of opening back up the cut and fixing that a little bit. There were some music cues that needed fixed. So yeah, that that was kind of the call that happened. It was like, how fast can you deliver? And we definitely, um, got, I think we got it in like right under the wire. So I love how fast fast and furious it is. And and it seems like this whole process of bringing this film to the screen has been this rigorous, af- at least after the pandemic uh, or after the um, delay in shooting because of the pandemic, then you guys were up and running and it's been go, go, go ever since. Oh my God, totally. We did Sundance Catalyst and I feel like from the moment we started the process of doing Sundance Catalyst, it was like, we have not stopped. And the second... We had dates and the second we knew we were going, when you're on a really small movie like this, you have to do the job of 10 people. Each person does, including the director has Mm -hmm. to do the job of like 100 people. And so it's just one of those things that when you know you have the money and when you know you have a window with an actors, you have to be as prepared as possible because when you know you're going to get on set with them, it's just going to go too fast and you don't have enough time to shoot the scenes you want to shoot. So you want to make sure to give them as much information and as much access to the character as you can. So it kind of takes all of us just like working to get there. Now, the I think what the producer role, the role of producer is sometimes one of the most elusive roles in this industry. Like yeah. what it, it bringing a film to life, but doing everything and having your finger on the pulse of every single element of making this film. Um, what is something that when you were getting your start, especially in this sort of the film is is made phase that you weren't aware of and now is just very much part of the process as you're, you know, completing multiple films. Yeah. Um, you mean like, what have I learned since my first film or do you mean like this film specifically? Um, I, I think the, the former. So from your first film and now taking into all films after yeah. you're like, well, always going to do this or yeah, I think, never going to do that again. Oh my God. There's so many things. Um, I think the thing that I learned the most, the first few times was just preparation. And also that like, there's this feeling on set sometimes when you wrap a movie where everyone's hugging and crying and being like, we did it. And it's, it's like very joyous moment. And I have learned that like, that is like section one of five or whatever that is for me. And Mm -hmm. so I'm like, this is just the beginning. Like we are not hugging. We are not saying goodbye. Like we have years, Laurel and Kevin and I would say this a lot to each other while we were making the movie, but like, 
you know, people are going to come and go throughout the film. People are going to come and go throughout mm-hmm. the process and their work is valuable and important. But at the end of the day, like it will just be the three of us in a room staring at a screen. Mm-hmm. And we have to be the ones who are the meter constantly for years. We have to be the one that mm-hmm. when we started the process four years ago, when we're releasing it, it's still the movie we imagined. And we're still, you know, taking into account the kind of material we want to put in the world, what kind of the way we want to present the film. And like, those are conversations we had in the very beginning and other people who maybe were in it four years ago. And like, you know, are just wishing as well, are people who we just worked with at the very last moment. I think it's sometimes they don't realize how many years you've been with it. So yeah. for me, I, I think I definitely learned like set and production is like step one of 10 or one of five or whatever you want to call it. And there is like a whole journey after that you have to kind of figure out. So make sure that you realize you're running a marathon and not like a sprint because mm-hmm. it's, it's a long road. So how do you maintain that stamina for, for working years on a project? I, I definitely try to pick better. I try to pick with people who are my friends. I try to pick with people who I want to spend years with, who I want to be on the phone late at night with, who I want to spend my weekends with. Like, to me, that has been like the biggest key to all of it is just like pick the people you adore and then like make something together because if you have a first few meetings and you're kind of unsure about the people, but you're like, well, the project's good. It's just like never ends up well, because even if the project is amazing, it's like, what was it all for? And like, you know, what was the experience of doing it? And so to me, it's not just about like what kind of work you're making, but also like who you're making it with. That's important to your Mm -hmm. life and your time and the way you want to spend your life. So yeah, I think it's like surround yourself with good people is probably the answer. When you look back on your early days as a producer, especially as you were producing your first feature film, what were the key either programs, labs, or learnings just by doing that you recommend any emerging producer focus on or focus their energy on outside of working with people that you you adore and want to totally. spend time with? I mean, I would definitely say there are like fundamental things you should learn that I definitely didn't know. I didn't go to film school, so no film school for me. Um, I... I mm-hmm. I had to learn everything from the beginning. I did not, I'd never really been on sets. I was like from the theater world for a long time. And so when I entered film, it was all kind of this whole new experience to me. And so to me, I looked up programs of like, how do I learn the facts? Like, how do I learn what a waterfall is? How do I learn what the back end looks like? How do I learn what deals look like for actors? How do I learn how to use each person within this? So one of those classes I took, I took Stu Pollard's class at Film Independent. He did like a basics to producing mm-hmm. class. And I learned so much just kind of like fundamentals. I did, I applied for every lab there was. I don't think I got any of them. I think I applied to the Sundance lab like four times. I never got it. And then the fourth time I got it, I was so happy that that was the moment I got it with this movie, not only because it was the Mm -hmm. movie, but also because like I was ready to take it in. I was ready to like learn that next step. And the Sundance labs really taught me really just about creating work and creating art. And what it means to do it with people who are true, like truly operating at, you know, this kind of like height of their potential. And I don't know if I would have been yeah. able to take that in in the beginning. Like, I don't know if I, if I went into that lab, not knowing anything about film, I don't, I think it would have kind of gone past me a little bit, but there was something so special about that lab kind of not only opening up doors for me, but also kind of teaching me how I want to work and what kind of people I want to work with. So those are probably the ones mm-hmm. that like come to mind, but I mean, I took entertainment partners does like movie magic classes i took like the movie magic class like four times and because they're free and you can just go and so i would just go and learn because i didn't know how to use any of that and i wanted to learn and 
There were so mm-hmm. many weird YouTube resources, just things that I was like, I refuse to be the dummy on set who like doesn't know how to do this stuff. Like I want to know how to do it and I want to know how to do it really well so that I can like guide people and not just sit around being like, I hope someone else is figuring it out. Cause I knew those kind of producers. Yeah. And to be honest, it's just like, was never my goal. So. Right. It sounds like you, there's this hunger for knowledge that you were like voraciously consuming anything you could get your hands oh, on totally. and then applying, totally. it, applying it on set. And then the other thing also, is just like going to set. I mean, that's like the biggest advice I tell mm-hmm. people all the time when I have so many people reach out being like, I just want to be a producer. Like, what would you recommend? And I'm like, well, if you've never been on a set, you should go be on a set and see if you want to be a producer because it's a different... See if you actually want yeah, to do it. Yeah, because like, it sounds really glamorous, but like, wait till you're in Shreveport for three months and you're like, you know what I mean? Like getting phone calls in the middle of the night or dealing with like really crazy things like COVID stuff or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like, those are the moments that I look back on that I'm like, I've had a lot of people come to set and then they realize within a few days, they're like, oh, I actually don't want to be a producer. I want to be like this thing. And I'm like, you don't know that yeah. until you get on set. So that is the most important advice I can give you. If you haven't done it, if you've done it and you know, then obviously there's other steps, but. Yeah. Yeah. With, um, with this film in particular, what was the biggest challenge as a producer getting it made? Um, definitely COVID. It's just such a cheap answer mm-hmm. because I'm sure so many people say that now, but it was COVID for many reasons. Cause it wasn't just COVID because the pandemic pushed us back, which is such a real thing, but it was also COVID mm-hmm. because we were in the peak of a COVID, you know, um, time when we were making it. And we were so right. small that there is no backup. Like there's no days that we can go down. There are no, there's no yeah. like emergency fund that we're hiding. It's like, we had this plan that we were like, okay, if we go down for COVID, then me, Laurel and Kevin will not take a dollar. And we didn't take that much to begin with, but we were like, we'll put all of our feedback wow. in and we'll like go back to some friends and ask for a grant and like figure out how long we can make it for more days. So we had all of these like kind of backstops of like, what do we do if this happens? And that was just kind of terrifying because yeah. people on our set were getting COVID. Some of our crew members got COVID and we always paid them. We always paid them for their day rate, even when they were down two weeks. Because wow. oh for us, gosh. we were like, we don't ever want to be so small that we cannot like support people financially. Like they are grownups and they have bills and it's not their fault they got COVID. But on top of that, it is like very terrifying when you have this movie kind of hanging on, you know, by like a teeny tiny little thread. And and that thread mm-hmm. is like a pandemic. So that was probably the hardest thing. That's such a, a wonderful example to be setting in indie filmmaking, because I think it's very easy to like justify something like not paying somebody if they're not on set working. But like that is, I think, the shift that we need to make that starts with the people who are leading the production, which is prioritizing people and the humanity of them and and supporting them in the way that other industries do. So thank you for doing oh, that. Yeah, 100%. Oh yeah. Like I do not, I really don't believe in interns. I do not believe, I believe that there are people there to learn and those people are PAs and like we can pay them a PA rate and there's a role for that. But like anyone who is showing up and giving us their time and work, they deserve to have a living. And I don't care where they came from because they're working the same as everyone else. And at the end of the day, if we don't have enough money to pay everyone, then we should be making a movie. So as we wrap up here, uh, and now that the film will be out in the world, what's next for you? Um, Well, we're going to have our premiere in LA. We're going to have a premiere in New York City, which is exciting. I'm actually going to be flying into New York City from Rome, like the day we premiere, which is so cool. I know Laurel's going to do Q&As. Eliza's coming in from Australia, which is huge. Um, we're going to do a party with Lord Huron. I think it's going to do a set and play the song, Ace Up My Sleeve, which is so fun. 
Um, so yeah, so many, so many amazing things ahead. And then, yeah, I wrap a movie in Italy this week that I'll be in post in through the year. And Laurel and I are trying to cook up, you know, a million other projects as, as, you know, with Kevin and dream team. I, I, I love them. And yeah, I think we all just want to keep doing it together. So that's the goal. Well, thank you so much for making a fantastic film. I can't wait for the world to see it. And uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for supporting it. Thanks for spreading it. Thank you for everything. I appreciate it. Thank you to Laurel and Kara for joining us on the No Film School podcast. And congratulations on your film now being out in the world. I appreciate how this team was able to bring us through each stage of this process. To be able to watch their success unfold in real time is really exciting. And the film itself is fantastic. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can learn more about all things filmmaking on our website, nofilmschool.com. And you can also follow us on social media at nofilmschool. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all platforms. And let us know what you think by shooting us an email, podcast at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.